Belknap Long was born April 27th, 1901, though his birth year is sometimes listed as 1903 due to him misrepresenting his age. A common theme tonight of uh, (laughs) people misrepresenting things about themselves. At 16, he would win an essay writing contest for the magazine The Boy's Life, which led to his invitation into the United Amateur Press Association. In a magazine printed by the organization, Long would write his first weird fiction story, The Eye Above the Mantle, in 1921. It is this story that caught the eye of H.P. Lovecraft, with whom Long would begin a correspondence. It is with Lovecraft's support that he chose to fully pursue a literary career rather than becoming a naturalist as Long originally planned to do. Also, having mentioned his name earlier, it should be noted that Long likely introduced Lovecraft to Lord Dunsany. Lovecraft would also recommend Long to the publisher of Weird Tales, J.C. Hanneberger, soon after the creation of the magazine, and Long's first story in Weird Tales would be The Desert Lich in November 1924. In 1930, however, Long would publish The Thought Materializer in Hugo Gernsback's Science Wonder Stories Quarterly, shifting more towards writing science fiction rather than weird fiction, the former gaining popularity, dominating pulp magazines. He would, by the early 1940s, have multiple stories printed in Astounding Science Fiction and the companion fantasy magazine Unknown, both magazines headed by John Campbell. As periodicals began to decline in popularity, Long, like other science fiction writers, would move to book publications, his first being a collection of stories through Arkham House, The Hounds of Tindalos, the title story being one of Long's most notable works. The Hounds of Tindalos first appeared in Weird Tales in March 1929. Interestingly, despite the story featuring creatures that would be considered part of Lovecraftian mythos, this is the only story out of the three I'm leading on that was in an issue of Weird Tales that contained nothing published or republished by H.P. Lovecraft. At the start of Hounds of Tindalos, the narrator, named Frank, has been called by his friend Halpin Chalmers, an author and a man who is characterized as skeptical of certain branches of modern science, but is strongly inclined towards mathematics. He speaks of his wish to use those mathematics, along with drugs, to better understand the fourth dimension of time, revealing that he has come across a drug used by Eastern alchemists centuries ago, but is unknown to the West, and that using this drug may allow him to travel back through time. Explaining that time is just another dimension of space, that events that have happened and will happen all exist and continue to exist in this space, and presenting the drug to Frank, claiming that it inspired Taoism, he asks his friend to supervise his taking of the drug and take notes on what he says. 
After Chalmers attempts to dispel any concerns Frank has for his safety, the latter hesitantly agrees to help him. After studying some of his mathematical charts, Chalmers takes the drug at the same instant his clock stops. He starts to narrate his experiences to Frank. He observes the objects in the room fading away, things growing darker, and then he is out of the room. He claims to see everything, witnessing every life of every human being before him on the planet. By focusing, he realizes he can see even farther back, and distinguishes between curved time and angular time, that the beings in angular time cannot enter curved time. He reaches back to before the rise of humanity, then before there was life on land, then to when life in water consisted only of single-celled organisms. He encounters an abyss and then passes through angles, growing more distressed as he continues but not wanting to be roused by Frank, who is becoming increasingly more worried. As Frank becomes aware of a growing scent in the room, Chalmers says he sees creatures, things with no bodies, which he then exclaims are aware of him, are coming towards him. Chalmers falls to the ground, acting inhuman and feral, convulsing and barking. When Frank starts to snap him out of it, he tries to bite his wrist before Frank's efforts to rouse him finally succeed in bringing Chalmers back to himself. Chalmers faints, then regains consciousness soon afterwards, and tells Frank of the horrible creatures he saw, creatures known by the Greeks as the Hounds of Tyndalos. He tells Frank they hunger for man, that the hounds are entirely of evil and want what is clean in man, that they cannot truly be called evil, as they are so outside the conception of morals that human beings have, that angles are the expression of evil, and purity is represented through curves. Frank doesn't take Chalmers seriously and leaves, telling him to see a doctor. The next day, Frank is called by Chalmers, who asks him to come to his home with plaster. The two men use the plaster to cover all of the angles of the room, smoothing them into curves which Chalmers claims will keep the hounds out. Once again, Frank suggests his friend see a doctor, and Chalmers responds by telling Frank that his mind can't conceive of the creatures he has seen, and that his intellect is superhuman and knows of his friend's limitations. There are, then, two announcements from a newspaper presented, one describing an earthquake, the other the mysterious death of Chalmers. In the latter, there is an odor described as coming from his room, alerting his neighbor who knocks at Chalmers' door, getting no answer. The room is then opened by the superintendent, where they find him dead. He is nude on his back, in the center of the unfurnished room, covered in blue fluid. He had been decapitated, his head resting on his chest, but with no sign of blood. Bits of the plaster that had fallen from the corners of the room were on the floor and arranged around his body. There are pieces of paper beside him, most with unintelligible senses and symbols, but one recounts his shock at the earthquake, which knocked loose some of the plaster, and the arrival of the hounds, ending with their tongues and a written scream. There is then a message from a chemist on the fluid that was on Chalmers' body, which explains that the fluid is living matter but contains no enzymes which break down cells, giving the matter immortality. The story finishes with an excerpt from one of Chalmers' books, which foreshadows the nature of and his encounter with the hounds, where he claims he will one day travel through time and meet the creatures face to face. And boy, did he. <laughs> yeah. So. so I thought that was a really interesting way of structuring the story. I, 
I wasn't expecting that. I don't know if it entirely worked the best, but I, I kind of liked that. It, it was so weird that it ended with an excerpt from his book like that. Yeah. Like, added this real melancholy note. Like, he could have put that at the beginning of the story, and maybe it would have worked just as well. But the fact that he put it at the end seemed both weird, but also just gave it this melancholy twist at the end that I kind of mm-hmm. liked. <laughs> yeah, I like that too, that they added that at the end. Yeah, I like this one as well. It reminded me of a lot of things, especially the, I, I guess, the ending bit, but the beginning where they discuss briefly on contemporary physics and how there is a mm-hmm. split between modern science and alchemy and that there's still a great deal of truths that science has to discover reminded me a bit of the Lugonis stories and some of the stuff we covered in that spiritualism episode where mm-hmm. there is this dichotomy between the supernatural and it's traditionally being seen as something outside the realm of science, but maybe science can go forward and explain these phenomenon. And I guess his way of doing this is through ancient Chinese psychedelics. Yeah, There was a reference that I had to look up because he says, quote, I believe that drugs expand human consciousness. William James agreed with me. And I was like, what? So apparently William James is really big into nitrous. And oh. I don't know how much that went into his philosophy writing or if he partook with his brother Henry, but a bit of an interesting thing that I, I didn't know was he was into. Yeah. The other thing that this really reminded me of is that bit of paper he wrote with the <laughs> written scream, where it's just like that bit from Monty Python on the Holy Grail where oh, they yeah. encounter the, <laughs> the black beast of Arg. It's like, well, you wouldn't write that. You just say it and... <laughs> I don't know. As much as it does have some cool ideas, it does have some of that silly pulp writing stuff that yeah, yeah. I think is is charming, and it, it does work in its favor more than it detracts from it, especially when it is a pretty short piece. Yeah, I gotta say that if I die, when I die, and if I die a horrible death, I would want to write down my scream before yeah. I died. I think that would be very fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> especially if it was on a pen and paper. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just when you hear the slippery body coming towards the door and you think about that hand and then you think about the window, it shows your real possession of mind and character. If you sit there and you write, ah, (laughs) because you know, you're just, there's, you've got so much to think about. You're so dedicated. You're so dedicated to record everything. You have to get those, those last thoughts down. And it's an A with five H's. I mean, so it must have taken him at least a second or two to write. I don't think he was on a typewriter. As the hounds of Tindalos with their tongues are... (laughs) He's getting attacked by them. He has that one last second to write those six letters. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That's so good. I want to get to a little more of the writing in a moment. But, Nate, when you're just talking about the science aspect, I did think, like, it was very obviously... The story was influenced by some of the new theories about relativity and time and so oh, on. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You can tell that Long was sort of blown away by the concept that every event that exists always exists and always happens because time is not... We are perceiving it in a linear flow from one moment to the next, but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that that's the way time, quote, is. Mm-hmm. And so he's just so blown away by this concept that he wanted to write this story. 
Yeah, right? uh, that was one other thing that kind of it, it approaches it from a different way. But when we did the automaton ear, and she basically constructs a device that you could hear all the events of time through the, I guess, permanent vibrations and the waves of sound, and thus air able to reconstruct the events of time. This, I guess, approaches it somewhat differently, but he has the same experience of, like, literally experiencing all of humanity and history at once, and it just being so overwhelming. And the more he goes back into time, the more strange and horrible it is. Yeah, and I think that other writers who wrote in this kind of milieu, even at this time, like... Clark Ashton Smith, and even Robert E. Howard in one of the Conan stories I read recently is pretty good at, like, kind of striking that balance. I mean, I gotta say, a little bit of background to back up a moment, but I have read this story before, and I've also read a collection of Frank Belknap long stories. And while I really do appreciate his concepts, and I think that he's was a very creative person and I I kind of like where his mind goes with a lot of his stories. I always kind of feel like in some ways they could be better. Like the writing is not, it's kind of what you stereotypically think of when you think of that rushed pulp writer who's just trying to turn out decent stories, right? They're lacking a certain, I guess, something in the, like the, something that some of his contemporaries maybe even had a little bit. I think that he doesn't quite bring across that idea of experiencing all those moments simultaneously. I will say that I can kind of relate a little bit because in my infrequent experiences with psychedelic drugs, I can say that sometimes I do feel like my personality is fragmented. So it feels like there's one aspect of personality that's able to consciously and rationally relate things that it should not be able to relate, right? Here he is just saying, like, I was a Roman soldier. I was uh, this and that. And yeah. our, I am this and I that. Was, and like, I was Julius Caesar. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no emotion behind it. There's no, like, it just, it feels too rational almost. I don't know. It's not as good as some of what some of his contemporaries were going for, I think is what I'm saying. He saw the thing in his head, but he just didn't, he didn't bring it across even as well as maybe Lovecraft would have. Yeah, is kind of how I feel about it. And it's unfortunate, but I mean, I kind of like, I read this story because it is kind of a famous story in the, people like to say Cthulhu mythos, I don't know, Lovecraft mythos, whatever you want to say. We're deliberately not really talking about that that much during this episode, because I don't really think there's as cool and fun as it is. I don't think we really need to go there. But this story does have frequently referenced connections to that so i wanted to read it a long time ago and i do remember feeling that same thing like it's a little bit it's good but it's just lacking that extra something to take it to the next level of being awesome and at times the writing is a little funny but it's also really cool because morbid angles right (laughs) (laughs) yes what is that one part where he says what is pure in humanity comes from a curve yeah curves are good Curves are good. Angles, though. You've got to watch for those. Right. Especially the further back you go in time on your drug trips. Yeah. Kind of early for psychedelic writing, because this was what? 1929. 1929, yeah. I mean, so LSD was not synthesized yet, never mind a whole 
counterculture that would emerge surrounding it and where this type of writing would become commonplace. That particular angle, I don't think we've seen too, too much in the literature up to this point. No, not really. Though it does kind of creep up every now and then. Yeah, and Algernon Blackwood has his psychic detective, John Silence, or one of the other characters in one of the stories using cannabis. And like, it's something that's considered a positive aspect of psychoconnect... What was the word he used? I can't remember. It's essentially, though, opening one's mind and opening the channels of one's mind and stuff. Right. It obviously was something that was that really caught on throughout the 20th century. So, and it's part of the counterculture. But it is it is interesting because just a few years later, you would see stories all over by all kinds of writers talking about these kind of experiences and how they open the mind to other planes and other dimensions and stuff. And I think the strength of that is when the writing gets really, really carried away with the psychedelia and really like visionary creations and otherworldly picturesque things that even somebody like Lovecraft could do quite well, even though he was absolutely a teetotaler 100% all the time. It is something that rests in the imagination. I think Long sort of touches on it here, but he just can't quite... I don't know. It's it's <laughs> it needs a little more flowerness, maybe or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think about how somebody like C.L. Moore would have done it too, and made it more colorful, I guess. And it just it's. But again, it does have that weird emotional coda at the end, which was a very strange structure. I I just I can't I keep coming back to that, and the way he chose to put that at the end is this kind of like it's this little coda of sadness that. <laughs> well, I didn't quite expect and I had actually forgotten about because mm-hmm. I actually thought that it ended with the ah <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good end I have to say yeah <laughs> yeah somehow I forgot about all the back material <laughs> it's like suddenly newspaper excerpts and other things that are an interesting added new and good perspective i think uh that yeah. make the story a little bit more interesting yeah it's sort of like an appendix that they kind of add yeah. at the end so you know what happened yeah. and really this guy frank who we assume is frank Belknap long himself who's narrating mm-hmm. the story he he doesn't he kind of makes himself out to be a bit of a dick right like <sighs> His friend's like, hey, man, uh, I need you to watch me have my drug experience just in case, right? And he's like, yeah, okay, fine, I guess. Uh, I hate this, by the way. And and then he just walks out on him, right? He's like, yeah, sorry, I'll call my doctor. uh, He'll he'll give you a ring sometime and you guys can talk. Yeah, (laughs) He just kind of walks away. I did think it was funny the the way Chalmers is talking about this really kind of deep, intense things he just saw with curves and angles. And Frank's response is just like, you need help. And that's it. Yeah, Yeah. just totally dismisses it as total bullshit and really condescending to him the whole time. Meanwhile, he's going through these frightening, awful experiences, and he doesn't take it seriously until he's a pile of goo, really. Yeah. Yeah, and he's like the exactly wrong person that you want to have with you when you're having uh, some kind of psychedelic experience. (laughs) It's like, yeah, the guy that you're on, your person with you might be like fully aware that you're on some weird plane and like, you're not going to make sense, but they can't tell you like, yeah, I'm just going to walk out and call you a doctor and 
Yeah, he needs more friends with similar interests to himself, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Find the spiritualist aunt from Claimed, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was also, speaking of connections, though, with other stories and so on, was also reminded a little bit of, once again, I'm going to keep coming back to it, and we're just going to have to read it on the podcast, I guess, House on the Borderland by Hodgson, mm-hmm. where somebody who's not necessarily in the first place interested in weird geometry and mathematics but somebody who travels to another dimension because of the house that he's in and certain things in another plane become aware of him and instead of hound things they're swine things in the house on the borderland but they hold his house to siege and like half the book is him battling these monsters like in a video game or something like it's it's uh, these weird pig demons that assail his home because where he is in his study he just happens to go on these astral travels and it just sort of happens randomly in the book like <laughs> there's no he doesn't even have to do anything and he's just taken to these real weird realms and he has a out-of-body experience journey to the end of time in the solar system and all kinds of crazy stuff happens to him. but Yeah, I think we'll definitely be coming to that one maybe sooner mm-hmm. rather than later. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd like to. It's a great, great book. Really weird and perfectly fitting with the kind of stuff we've been talking about today. But yeah, I, I don't know. I enjoy this. I feel like Long, maybe despite his shortcomings, which I feel like I should kind of warn people about just because, I mean, there are definitely better stylists out there. But I do find it interesting, too, that of all the authors we've discussed so far, I mean, we've pretty well entered the magazine era. The Great Depression of the 1930s is going to be the big hurdle for a lot of writers from that time period. Are they going to make it past that hump? A lot of them don't. They don't really, for one reason or another. And you have to kind of wonder about it. I mean, somebody like Robert E. Howard died when he was 30 years old, killed himself. He could have done so much more. But we'll just never know. He never got really the book form publications that were all the rage when the paperback age kind of took over. And Long is an exception to everyone that we've talked about so far in that he actually does outlive all that and was still publishing books up till the 1980s. Yeah, it's pretty wild. This is the first I've read by him. I had to double check the Dark Descent table of contents just to make sure one of his stories wasn't in there. And it's not. But... Pretty good introduction, I think. This is the first I've read by him as well. Yeah, we'll probably come back to him if he's been that prolific, but uh, I certainly enjoy this one. (laughs) Yes. So people also who have no doubt heard this referred to in the Lovecraft lore and so on, sort of a different approach from Howard Lovecraft, but definitely worth looking into. It's a good story. It's pulpy fun for sure. All right. Well, I think we got some other pulpy fun coming up next. Yes.
Winger Harris was born as Claire Marie Winger on January 18, 1891, in Freeport, Illinois. Her father, Frank Stover Winger, was an electrical engineer who would also try his hand in writing, publishing a book titled The Wizard of the Island or The Vindication of Professor Waldinger in 1917, six years before Harris would publish her first and only novel, Persephone of Eleusis, a romance of ancient Greece, nine years before she published her first science fiction story. She began attending Smith College in 1910, but would drop out in 1912 after meeting Frank Hyde Harris, also an engineer, and marrying him. In 1927, having been published in Weird Tales, Harris then entered an Amazing Stories writing contest organized by Hugo Gernsback, with the story The Fate of the Poseidonia, which would win third place. Gernsback would say of Harris's place in the contest, that the third prize winner should prove to be a woman was one of the surprises of the contest, for, as a rule, women do not make good scientification writers because their education and general tendencies on scientific matters are usually limited, but the exception, as usual, proves the rule, the exception in this case being extraordinarily impressive. Some mixed feelings about that response. Yes, okay. she's kind of an asshole. <laughs> yeah, just kind yeah. of like, hey, most women suck at writing, but you don't. Congratulations. Yeah, I mean, people say that he was more than willing to publish work by women, which sort of puts him above other some other editors. But then when you read yeah. something like that, it just kind of like still leaves. Uh, I don't know. It's just it's having <laughs> yeah. with faith praise. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a backhanded compliment. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, especially at the time, women had just such difficulty entering the science and engineering sphere. And mm. it's ironic how, like, in the 1940s, which is not too far after this, women would do, like, all the pioneering work in modern computing. And mm-hmm. the early computing field from the 40s to the 60s was, like, entirely dominated by women. And afterwards, it just kind of switched back due to various societal factors and things like that. And it Mm -hmm. just really strikes me as someone like Gernsback, who not only ran fiction magazines, but engineering magazines, like in a lot of them, too, that he would be uh, just so dismissive of people like that. It's just, uh, yeah, disappointing, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah, definitely true. Mm Mm-hmm. For the next three years, Harris would write multiple stories for pulp magazines. By 1930, however, her run of frequent publications ended with The Ape Cycle. In 1933, she would submit a final story after receiving a letter from a fan who was attempting to print his own magazine called Science Fiction, which ran for five issues. The fan turned out to be Jerry Siegel, who would later create Superman with his friend Joe Schuster. While Harris would stop writing new stories, the ones she had already written would continue to be reprinted in other sci-fi magazines. In 1947, she self-published a collection of her works called Away from the Here and Now, Stories in Pseudoscience from Dorrance Press. She lived to the age of 77, passing away on October 26, 1968. Harris's first science fiction story, 
The Runaway World was published in the July 1926 issue of Weird Tales. The issue also contains uh, a few other stories by prolific women pulp writers at the time, including Gray Laspina and Bassett Morgan. In The Runaway World, it is the year 2026, and Earth has established radio communication with the planets Mars and Venus, and there are more messages being received from planets in other solar systems. We learn this from the story's opening conversation between two scientists, Henry Shipley and Leon LaRue, the latter being quite a prominent figure in his field. LaRue tells Shipley of his theory that the difference between planets orbiting suns and electrons orbiting protons between the infinite and infinitesimal is time. He shifts to a much more distressing matter, what brought him to Shipley in the first place. A message from Mars reveals that the planet is moving further away from the sun, that they are gradually leaving the solar system, and in this incident, Shipley concludes that LaRue's theory is correct, and considers the idea of a larger universe, to which they are only a molecule, experimenting with splitting electrons from an atom. As Mars's condition is realized by the public, LaRue decides Shipley should broadcast his view of the situation, but most people don't accept his theory, thinking Mars was being punished by God. We switch then from these two scientists to the narrator of the story, James Griffin, who is not very knowledgeable on matters of astronomy. In fact, he feels self-conscious around his assistant, Ed Zoodle, after mistakenly remarking that Mars was closer to the sun than Earth. An important detail for later. (laughs) That'll come up again. He has some strange hang-ups, this guy, too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But when he finds out from his wife, Vera, that the Zoodles are coming to their house to witness a special address from the president, James is upset about it. Along with the Zoodles, an astronomy professor, Oscar Marden, and his wife come to watch the address as well. As they watch, the light from outside grows dim and it starts to grow colder, something they first fail to note, but become increasingly aware of. The president, still addressing the nation, tells citizens to tune into a message from LaRue, who informs them that Earth is suffering the same fate as Mars, leaving its orbit around the sun. He tells the listeners that they will need to find adequate shelter with a large stock of food, water, and fuel to keep themselves warm. This message causes the group to go into a panic, until Oscar cuts in, calming them, and suggesting the Zoodles and Griffins to pack and purchase any food that they can before heading for the shelter of his observatory, which is powered by atomic energy. James decides to go out to the store while his family gathers together the supplies they already have. What he encounters during his trip to the store is utter chaos. People are panicking in the streets, there is a huge crowd inside the store, some refusing to pay for supplies, stealing them, as there isn't enough order left to stop them. James is able to acquire and pay for $10 worth of groceries and make his way out of the shop. He encounters a young girl, a friend of his daughter's with a basket, trying to buy food for her and her mother who can't leave the house, so James gives her some of his provisions. He then, however, runs into a man that attempts to rob him, but James hits him with a can and is able to escape. 
He makes it to the observatory where his family, the Zoodles, and the Mardens are waiting. They realize only later in the day that they have no means of contact with the outside world, unable to leave the observatory for them, as when James considers running back to his house for his devices, discovers a dog already frozen stiff after a few hours of exposure to the cold. The men of the group are feeling grim, but they know that the women are remaining cheerful, and Ed says they have more grit and pluck than we have. At this point, the group starts to lose track of the time they have resided in the observatory, no longer able to determine the time by Earth's rotation and revolution around the sun. Oscar spends his time observing space on his own, at one point revealing that the Earth is still rotating, but doing so slower, completing a turn on its axis every 27 hours instead of 24. Eventually, the Earth ceases to rotate, and its acceleration through space increases in speed. Oscar soon lets James in on a new discovery before everyone else, showing him that their planet is approaching another star, and that they might plunge into it. He tells James not to worry himself over it, to essentially resign himself to whatever fate they are to meet, because there's nothing they can do about it. Soon, the star they are heading towards grows close enough for it to be visible to the others. They decide to head out of the observatory, since they are now in this new star's warmth. On their excursion, they find the city in ruins, and come across the many corpses of their friends and neighbors, perished either from the cold or from starvation. The group take on the task of burying the dead, hurrying as the growing warmth causes decay. The heat increases, and they prepare to move away from the town to a place in the world that would be less affected when they notice the sun is setting, indicating that Earth is once again rotating. The people who are left celebrate, and Oscar takes James, as well as Ed, up to the observatory. Oscar shows the two men through the telescope, what appears to be a reddish star, which he tells them is Mars, orbiting between Earth and the new sun. Ed, to the confusion of James, falls to his knees, praying to him, then explains he is worshipping him as a god, who, having said Mars was closer to the sun than Earth, has made it so. On that comedic note, and the hopeful one that people of Earth are adapting to the new sun, the story ends. <laughs> yeah. So I thought it was a funny twist at the end that yeah. the orbital positions of Mars and Earth had apparently been reversed mm -hmm. because that was the funny thing at the beginning that the narrator James was all upset about because yeah. he had mistaken and he had said something foolish to his inferior at yeah. work about how... An incredibly embarrassing mistake, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mortifying. Yeah. Yeah, no, this was a lot of fun. And she really puts a lot into this story mm -hmm. a lot of really interesting ideas here from early talk about splitting atoms mm -hmm. and what that might mean to the idea of like supra and infra universes you know we might have like tiny universes contained in the particles that rotate around our neutrons and protons and we just might be a particle to some other vastly larger being as well as a lot of the post-apocalyptic stuff. Mm -hmm. She kind of touches on the socioeconomic angles of that, where basically the lower-class people who are still reliant on obsolete forms of energy mm -hmm. are the ones who die off, and the people who have access to, I guess, 
atomic piles in yeah, their basements. Right, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're the ones who make it through. Right. And she doesn't dwell on it a lot, but this is a really multi-racial, multi-ethnic society. Jim's wife is Russian. Uh, his friend Oscar is Hispanic. There's a lot of diversity in this story and the characters, even though a lot of the characters aren't that well fleshed out or really gone into a lot. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of an interesting take on it, I think. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. It, it was weird how everything was wrapped up. I mean, I don't know. It was just... <laughs> Now the Earth is around a new sun, and everything is like going to be better for the survivors now, I guess. And all the millions of corpses, we'll figure out what to do with all of them a bit later, I guess. I don't know. It was, it was very strange. But yeah, I liked it because of the way it was set up. And I liked the way the mood kept changing. Because yeah, there was that aspect of the microcosm versus macrocosm sort of <laughs> thing that, that becomes a major theme in science fiction, I think, around this time. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of examples that are mostly later, like yeah, the story Microcosmic God by Theodore Sturgeon and Surface Tension by James Blish, which I remember mm-hmm. were two stories I read a long time ago. And there were yeah. definitely other cases, too, from around this time, but I don't really know where it all started. I mean, I guess, you know, you could take it back to Micromegas. Right, Gulliver's know, Travels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The story I was thinking of when reading this was one that I read for the science fiction class I'm in now. Robert Sheckley's Starting from Scratch, which is a pretty comical oh, yeah. take on that. Yeah, it's a funny story. Yeah. It, it's a really funny story. Yeah, basically, it, it operates on the same idea of like time being sort of this differential between the infinite and infinitesimal. This creature comes to a man, the narrator, in a dream and tells him that his civilization is being threatened by this huge, like, obelisk that is coming towards their cities and is laying waste to everything in its path. And he finds out that it is, the creature is located on his finger and it's when he scratches his finger. It's his fingernail that is causing the destruction. (laughs) The creature is basically came to him in this dream to tell him to stop scratching his finger. Yeah, and there's a bit of allusion to the use of psychedelic drugs to reveal that truth as well. And both the alien creature and the dude narrator are both like, oh yeah, we have that in our world too. Uh, Like, yeah, okay, so you understand. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So making a nice tie-in to our previous discussion, which uh, was a little rambling, but I think everybody got the idea. So it is interesting, and I, I think that Sheckley was definitely like... I'm sure we will talk about him at some point because I definitely want to. I really am enjoying doing short stories. And I I think that Mm. this is just going to be so important moving forward, especially in between the 30s and the 50s. So, And I think, yeah, we've said this before, but a lot of the attention really does go to the novels. And sometimes Mm -hmm. people are just more effective when they have 10 pages to work with. Yeah, and Robert Sheckley was the master of the really short story. Yeah. It was something he did really, really well. And the one that we're talking about is from the 1970s, but like by then he's like a master of this form. He's been doing this since, I don't know, late 40s or early 50s. So we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, it's only, I think, like four pages or something. Yeah, Yeah. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I did think that like that's definitely some of the 
implications and political things here were amusing to me. Like the president basically gets on television and says, well, you guys are all on your own. Good luck. And <laughs> yeah. he just bows out. And that's it. That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Like, I don't know. Was that supposed to be a satire? Like, I... I... <laughs> Yeah, like, well, we're providing no help. Yeah, I mean, presumably he's one of the guys that survived, too, right? So, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the, the people in the political class always do. But, people with power. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, you mentioned the Great Depression being make-or-break moment. The presidency and the government of the United States at the time was pretty much, you know, that happened on their watch during this time. So I could definitely mm-hmm. see some political satire going into this story because i think signs are pretty much on the wall when this was written yeah i just like it it ends so weirdly i i don't know like there's this weird religious note to it and there's this like then this reference to the thing in the beginning with the person who was theorizing that they were in fact just a small particle on in some larger universe that was maybe a living creature or something right like it's it's just I don't know. And, and nothing is, I mean, I like the ambiguity. I think that kind of makes it a weird tale is we don't know if that's really what happened. Like it's just a theory that some person had. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right? one, that's one thing I really liked about this is it maintains a really light tone throughout. Like I wouldn't say this yeah. is a comic story necessarily, but even though all these like really big and strange ideas are being discussed and, you know, it's pretty grim that like, Presumably, a good chunk of the Earth's population just freezes to death. Yeah, yeah. She keeps it lighthearted, and yeah. it's it's kind of fun that he like knocks out the childhood bully with a can of fish or what whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I had forgotten about that part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like there are some really gruesome images in it, but they aren't described, and like it, it still remains light and has sort of this very soft quality to it where it doesn't really affect you as much as it would if if it were focused on right yeah no this is definitely not a horror story like a lot of the stories we've covered in this episode no even though it probably does have the biggest body count out of all of them (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah millions i would presume (laughs) i mean yeah she doesn't keep up the tension for long and the test's part for sure is like yeah him going to get the food right and then we skip ahead like several years in a very short time and their food's running out. But like we don't really get a sense of how that's really been going for them or anything. And again, like this is a short story, right? Like it is what it is. There's no point in saying, oh, I wish it was an apocalypse novel, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just not that kind of thing. It is a bit of a mood chameleon and it, it does leave you with a few things to think about. Yeah. I, I do think, I mean, the disaster story aspect of it, this was, I mean... We haven't really done too much like that, uh, aside from perhaps The Last Man. Yeah. But the disaster narrative, we all know right now that it's a thing, right? Like, (laughs) movies like, well, I don't know about nowadays. I'm sure there's, like, plenty of more modern examples. But, like, there were a lot of really popular disaster movies in the 90s and early 2000s. And that's a tradition that goes back a long way. People always loved their stories of world-shaking disasters yeah and i think in part we've maybe put off doing these stories because there is an entire podcast dedicated to this in literature the apocalypse book club which we recommend you listen to if you're interested in this kind of thing but this definitely fits in with the end of the world i mean the world is literally thrown from orbit and 
plunged into the depths of space. Right. But really, it's like we're made to think that essentially some big hand just kind of picked it up and dropped it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Which is this kind of the, the amusing reason why that whole thing in the beginning is there, which doesn't really tie into the story that much of the guy and his family and, and all these families and how they tried to survive. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It, it's it's kind of neat the way she, she does it, I guess. Like, it's weird because it I was really drawn into that story and I was like kind of wanted to see more about like Shipley and them but then then she brought it to the real narrator of the story and I thought that the way she did it like at the end of that chapter specifically was pretty delightful like she just kind of said but that's my story and then then it was then it was oh okay then it was this person's story I I didn't really see anything else like that like throughout the the text but it was kind of just neat the way that happened and it just drew me it drew me right along and i was really happy about it i do think like it is sort of disorienting just going years later in such a short time like a few chapters later right you're like they just got in with their food now several years have passed and we are almost dead we have no food but wait things are looking up and it just kind of i don't know it was it was really strange I felt a little bit tossed around at sea while reading it, like a little bit. Not not quite sure what to grab onto, but I guess that's okay. It was a really interesting story from, I think, a tradition that we're going to see a lot more of in science fiction. Like, in terms of how it affects our genre that we're mostly talking about, I think this probably, this story typifies it more than any of the others tonight. Yeah, I think it's by far the most sci-fi story we've done in this episode. Yeah. And I'm certainly looking forward to coming back to Claire Winger Harris, because she seems to have a lot of really interesting sounding stories. I've only read Fate of the Posidonia besides this so far. So I I can say some things about that one, but I think I'll save them for when we actually talk about it, which we may do during our Mars themes episode, maybe. We have it scheduled somewhere. I'd have to look at the list. Yeah, we originally had it scheduled in the Weird Sea episode, but it doesn't really have much to do with that. So I kind of thought it wouldn't really fit in because we already had it and we already had a lot of material to cover anyway Mm -hmm. so yeah it got moved ahead just like more this time but Mm -hmm. we'll come to it we'll come to it and it's it's weird like this has happened with both the stories by harris that i've read so far but i kind of i kind of my, my feelings about them are ambivalent a little bit in terms of how i felt about how they were delivered like there were certain things about both the stories that I thought we're a little bit amusing, but I think we're intentionally so. Like you said, it's kind of a comic tone, Nate. Yeah. And I kind of agree with that. Like it's it's a little bit, it's lighthearted, but in a way that you don't quite get that at first. Like you don't quite feel that. And then it, it sort of, I don't know, like it feels a little bit jarring sometimes when you're thinking about all the people that died. And yet, <laughs> and yet she's like, oh, but things were kind of looking up for us and it was good. Like now we're we're around a new sun and it's temperate all the time on the earth now. There's no like ridiculous weather changes and <laughs> yeah, it's the kind of writing where she's not cracking jokes like uh, Douglas Adams or a Jari, right. but it's, funny stuff happens and I, I think yeah. intentionally so in this. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't want to talk about it too much yet, but in Fate of the Posidonia, I, I kind of got the same feeling like the. I thought it was kind of going that way with the hysterical male narrator because James, what's his name, was just so, uh, he, he every now and then referred to something really weird. Like it made him uncomfortable how his wife 
talk to Subtle or something. Yeah. Mm. And and also how he didn't like the way she indulged him. <laughs> it was like it made him feel really bad. And and, and I just thought it was gonna gonna go in this like see the thing about fate of the Posidonia and maybe this is just something that Harris does but her narrator again is he seems kind of a little bit unreasonable and a little bit like unnecessarily belligerent maybe it just it's kind of funny I don't know I'm interested to see if this is something she carries on doing because two stories is not really enough to go on but it's still a little bit more than one story so yeah machismo as being a fool rather than like a hero right right and and I think that kind of goes against like a lot of what was being published in Amazing, oh, yeah. which is yeah. where mm-hmm. Posidonia was published. Yeah. And in the end of that story, the Martian gets the girl, and the girl <laughs> writes a letter back to the man saying, well, sorry, I'm with the Martian now, <laughs> but the world is safe, and I hope you're happy. Like <laughs> <laughs> When I was reading it, I was kind of like throwing up my hands a little bit sometimes in, in like exasperation with the way the story was going. But then it got to the end, and I'm just kind of, huh. That's interesting. <laughs> interesting subversions going on here. Yeah, no, and I don't know. I mean, I, I do feel like certain aspects of this story were truncated, but I think she kind of said what she wanted to say. And it was a kind of a cool parable with a lot of different things happening and a lot of different ways you can think about it. Maybe like focusing too much on the construction of some of these like short stories to span large periods of time and stuff is, is not really, it's being a little bit overcritical on some aspects of them, I guess. So, I mean, she fits an impressive amount in the yeah. amount of space she has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I don't know. i more intrigued than I was before. And I, I'm like Claire Winger Harris. I definitely think like a few of the writers we've been discussing lately perhaps deserves a bit more attention than what she's gotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what was the name of the book that I was looking at? Is that uh, Partners in Wonder? Yes. Yes, oh. it is. Yeah, the Partners in Wonder book. I guess Claire Winger Harris and Francis Stevens, you know, Gertrude Bennett are more well known out of the early women authors. But as the book notes, there were literally hundreds that were writing during this time. Yeah, that's really something that those would be more well known and they're so like unrecognized pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like when I was looking at that, I mean, I mentioned Gray Lespina and Bassett Morgan. Yeah. And there were like a couple others that were by women in that issue as well. Yeah, Weird Tales Tales seems to have published a lot more women authors on average than some of the other pulps like Amazing. But it's just interesting that only a couple have, I guess, risen to somewhat out of obscurity where a lot of these other authors that may have only written a short story or two, virtually nothing would be known about their lives or their careers no. or anything like that. It'd be interesting to see like which ones are worth saving and which ones should be read. I mean, honestly, I mean, it's really become clear to me reading a lot of these histories and so forth lately, especially the Mike Ashley pulp histories. So many of these authors in general, I have never even heard of. You know, we all talk about the golden age and the pre-golden age and the very yeah. few authors that everybody's heard of and that have won the Hugos and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. there were so many others, right? And, all right, realistically, I mean, I've read through some of these massive golden age SF ebook packs. I've read, like, some of the stories. The quality is very variable, you know. Like, some of it's quite good, but then there are your share of atrocious stories 
that you would think would never be published and probably only would get published by somebody who paid half a cent a word. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's just, that's, that's, unfortunately, sometimes that's the way you have, you end up looking at it. But I think the distance of time has really allowed us to, to kind of, I mean, I personally, I'm just, I'm so excited just reading all these titles and looking at just imagining what all these stories might have been like and what it would have been like in the 1920s or the 1930s to get those magazines and to riffle through them and see what great wonders of the universe awaited you in the pages <laughs> therein. But I think now, I think that it's time to describe where we'll be heading next time on the Chrononauts podcast. Next time on the Chrononauts podcast, we will be speaking of something that I think we've alluded to quite a few times, especially in episodes like our coverage of the war in the air and the air battle and the angel of the revolution. That's right. We will be talking about war and we will be talking about future weaponry and great world destroying potentials of science. And we will also be discussing alternative possibilities such as George Tompkins Chesney's famous book or pamphlet, as you might say, The Battle of Dorking from 1871, which describes an invasion of Britain by Germany in the 1870s. We'll also be talking about A Fortune from the Sky by Skelton Kruport, which is apparently a pseudonym for John Adams, written in 1903. We will be talking about Leopoldo Lugones' story, The Omega Force. We did previously discuss an inexplicable phenomenon and the psychon written by him, and we have translations of those stories up on our blog spot as well as this one. And finally, we will be discussing Joel Martin Nichols' story, The Devil Ray, which was another Weird Tales publication from 1926. So, with all that said... We will say farewell. Be cautious in your travels between worlds. And be sure to keep your grimoires and transitional drugs locked away somewhere safe. I hear the Miskatonic University Library is considered a repository for the former, even with all the robberies they've been experiencing lately. Good night. Mm-hmm.